0: Hello and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist Podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. Marinebio.life scuba for beginners. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What do you call a fish wearing a tie? So Sophisticated. What did the mama shark say to her child you watch that sharkasm divya karnad is an assistant professor of environmental studies at ashoka university in india the focus of her work is marine conservation and fisheries management she won the global future for nature award in recognition for her work with in season fish a sustainable seafood initiative that she founded Divya is published in scientific journals like Ambio, Biological Conservation, Conservation Biology, Marine Policy, and the Proceedings of National Academy of Science. Divya offers a really important perspective on fishing and fisheries and building a community around both. I was inspired by her story and her commitment to her work, and I hope you will be too. Please enjoy. Divya, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start kind of back at the beginning with you a little bit, and we have a lot to cover, but you grew up on the coast of India, and you were drawn to the ocean at a young age, and not everybody is. So what was it that kind of made you decide that this was something you wanted to pursue as your lifelong passion?
1: I guess the beach or the sea has always been that space for me that is my place of calm it's where i can go to reflect it's the one place that you know time kind of stands still and gave me an opportunity actually to observe life around me while i was at the beach looking for this calmness and that's what got me really interested and i don't think i i can ever forget that and i'm definitely more of a beach person than a mountain person so yeah, that's what got me here.
0: So you knew right off the bat that you wanted to go to school and study marine science. Did you have like a specific topic in mind? Or were you just, I want the ocean, and I'm going to go learn more about it?
1: Yeah, I wasn't very particular. In fact, I wasn't completely focused on marine science right at the beginning. But what really got me into it was an opportunity to volunteer with a conservation organization that was doing active conservation work right in the city where I lived. And it was really strange to me that I had grown up for almost 17 years, not even knowing that there were uh, actually these wild marine organisms, basically sea turtles that were coming up to the beaches in the city where I lived. And not only had I never known about it, I had also like never even encountered one despite you know, going to the beach all the time. So working with this organization really like blew my mind in terms of the kinds of things that we could do. Just being in a city and just walking on the beaches during our spare time because we were, you know, relocating nests and protecting hatchlings and doing a whole bunch of, you know, really hands-on stuff. And this, I think, uh, also gave me an appreciation for all the people who, Worked in the sea, like the fishing communities there, because very often they were our partners in doing all this work. Even though they once were people who used to eat turtle eggs or uh, turtle meat, and uh, once they saw us being passionate about this, they were just like, "Okay, we will help you." And so uh, it really gave me an opportunity to not only know the animals of the of the seascape, but also the people.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you grew up on the coast. Did you have fishermen in your family? Was it part of your life growing up at all?
1: So I don't have fishermen in my family, but I did encounter the women from fishing communities a lot while I commuted to school or college. And I don't know how much you know about India, but the society here is pretty patriarchal and there's a lot of regular, everyday sexual harassment that happens, particularly if you're using public transport and trying to get from anywhere to anywhere else. And so in these situations where, uh, particularly as a young teenager when I didn't know how to handle these situations the women from the fishing community were really my saviors because here were these women who were very unusual in Indian society because they were the ones who were selling the fish and so they had the money Um, and so as a result they had a lot of power and they would work in these groups and they would always travel in groups and so anytime anybody any man was acting funny with anyone you could always rely on the women to sort of come to your help, even if no one else did. So many times I've seen them do this to others, and they've also helped me out in this way by literally just kicking the guy off the bus if he had tried something with me. So, I, I mean, in that way, they were always, like, fascinating. They were always people that I wanted to go back and work with, and I'm so glad that I was able to eventually do that.
0: Yes, and I'm really excited to get into that part of your story. But I'm curious... What made you come to the States to pursue your master's degree?
1: It was actually my PhD, but... Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So
0: what what made you come to the States to pursue your PhD after your master's?
1: So I really wanted to make a switch in terms of what I was doing when I went from my master's to my PhD, because until then I had Been trained only in biology and my focus was very much on the organisms and how they uh, like their physiology and how they work. And for my master's, I studied the orientation of sea turtles to different types of light. And I was particularly interested in this because there was so much development happening along Indian coasts and the coasts were just getting lit up. And I really wanted to have a solution for how we could, you know, do this development, but do it better and do it in a more sustainable way. But while I was doing this work... There was this one time when I was on the beach and I encountered a group of fishermen who were really drunk but also very upset. And they literally attacked me. And I mean, I had worked on the beaches for uh, at least 10 years before that. And I'd never faced anything like this with fishermen before. So this was a complete anomaly of behavior. And at that time, I was really scared out of my mind because this happened, you know, late at night on a beach which was completely rural and there was no one around and um, it was completely dark. But I managed to escape that situation and I worked up the courage to like go back to that village a few weeks later and speak to those people, the specific people who were on the beach that day. And then I saw their perspective because uh, this was a beach where there were sea turtles and they were actively being protected by the government and by conservationists and here were people who were living in the village nearby who were fishermen by profession but they were really poor and we were telling these fishermen that they couldn't go fish whenever the turtles uh, were in the water which was about you know three months of the year the adult turtles are congregating in the water and finally they come and lay their eggs And then like a month and a half later, there are these millions of sea turtle hatchlings that are going back into the water. And so once again, they can't fish. And then after that, there was the regular annual fishing ban, which is imposed every year by the government for the fish to sort of replenish. And so essentially, it was about six to seven months of the year we were asking these people not to fish. And we weren't doing anything to compensate them. And these were really poor people. And... It was obvious that they were desperate. It was obvious that, you know, coming from a completely different economic background, they were looking to me to find solutions. And I tried to justify that I was just a student or whatever, but I see now how I was being perceived in their eyes. And so it made complete sense that, you know, they would react the way they did. Uh, And so that one encounter and this explanation that they gave me really made me change my mind about how I should approach, you know, marine science. And I realized that at least in the context of India and a lot of the global south, here are these people who are like minds of information. They know everything about what's going on in the sea. And we're sort of just keeping them completely out of the picture and treating them as threats to conservation instead of including them. And I thought that that was completely the wrong approach and we needed to do it differently. And so I decided instead of biology, my PhD would focus on the social sciences so that I could learn how to, you know, more robustly and scientifically actually include these people in conservation.
0: That's so brave of you to go back. I mean, to be attacked and then to go back and face your attackers takes an amazing amount of courage.
1: I mean, it was just honestly like I was completely bewildered about how these usually very nice people would behave this way. Because for years and years, they had been so nice to me, much better, in fact, than the the people that I regularly encounter in cities and things like that.
0: Okay. So you had a relationship with them and then they turned. I could see that.
1: So I guess why
0: the United States though? I mean, you had studied up until that point in India and to study social sciences and cultural differences in a totally different country in one hand makes sense, but what made you jump the pond, the big pond?
1: So there are a couple of reasons. For one, it's pretty straight jacketed in India. If you If you start out in the sciences or if you start out in biology, at least, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, there weren't really any options for one to switch into some other discipline at all. So it would have been almost impossible for me to do that in India itself. So I automatically began looking outside. But I was particularly interested in the U.S. because I had attended some conferences before where they were describing various types of marine sciences and so on. And I did feel that universities in the U.S. really provided this wider perspective that would allow me to still sort of dabble and retain some of my biologist identity while I, you know, went on to do something else. And I did get to work with really amazing people who have, are social scientists of Fisheries and off the marine world. People like Bonnie McKay and Kevin St. Martin at Rutgers Universities are sort of like the top people who are doing this sort of cutting edge marine social science. And so I really wanted to work with them particularly.
0: That's awesome. So when you come back to your home country, you have a whole new, fresh perspective on things. So is that what inspired you to start your in season fish?
1: Yeah, so in-season fish was born out of several ideas, actually. One part of it was that it seemed like the fishing communities were, in all the scientific literature, being treated as the threat. They were the ones who were overfishing. They were the ones who were the cause of the problem. But when I came to India to do my research field work uh, for my PhD, I encountered fishing communities who were completely dependent on the fisheries and as a result were very aware about the kinds of negative changes that they were seeing in the environment and for them it was a matter of life and death like if their fisheries died they would die too so There was no question about, you know, thinking about sustainability. They were already doing things. They were already trying different methods. They had no external inputs. I mean, it's not like these fishing communities in some remote part of India were in touch with the FAO or whatever about how to do things sustainably. So they were just doing these things by trial and error. And they some of these communities actually hit upon some successful strategies that have now also been recognized by the FAO and other such organizations as being sustainable fishing methods. So things like, you know, short soaking times for net and, you know, just checking the nets often to ensure that they're catching what they really want As opposed to some, you know, some sort of bycatch and making sure that they adjust the net either in terms of depth or in terms of in which current it's positioned so that they end up catching what they really want to. I also encountered fishermen who did not want to spend too much time out in the ocean. They were just, you know, soaking their nets for about four or six or uh, at the most 10 hours. And coming back every morning, they would go out at night and come back in the morning. Uh, And this was unlike the regular fishermen who would be out for days and days and days, you know, looking for their biggest profits and things like that. So when I asked these fishermen why they were behaving in this strange way, which seemed like counterintuitive, they sort of were philosophers in disguise because they were telling me about why, you know, why would they even think about going out into the ocean in these really small, less than 10 meter long boats that don't even have a sun cover and being out there for days and days where there's like practically no food, and they will have to carry all their water. And there are all these issues be really uncomfortable when they could just come back and sleep in their comfortable beds. And so it was like a lesson in, you know, how to enjoy your life while you have it kind of thing. Because They were talking about how fisheries are so unpredictable and particularly in these types of small scale fisheries are quite unsafe as well. So their perspective was that, you know, we don't know when we are going to die. We might die tomorrow. And so let's just be comfortable and be happy rather than sort of focusing on the profits. Yeah. So I was just trying to bring this back to in-season fish. So when I encountered these fishermen who were fishing in these really strange ways, I mean, really sustainable, but economically strange ways. One of the things that I encountered was the fact that while fishermen were trying this, they were often not able to sustain this for long periods of time because the markets did not want to buy what they caught when they fished in these sustainable ways. So, To explain this, I have to like take a step back to just say that because India is a tropical country, we have a huge amount of biodiversity, not just on land, but also in the water. So unlike some temperate countries where you have huge schools of just a single species, in India, we have relatively small schools, but of hundreds of species. And so when people were fishing in these more sustainable ways, they ended up catching this huge diversity. And while I was doing my work, I began to record what it was that people were catching. And I found that even if you excluded, you know, the threatened sharks and the dolphins and all those things, you were still ending up with over a hundred different edible varieties of fish being caught every day from just one or two fisheries. But when what the fishermen were complaining about was that the markets were only willing to take about 20 of these species because that's what really sold in urban areas and the urban markets were the real profit-making markets for them. The rest of it was Basically, originally they used to just discard it or just eat it locally at home or whatever. Or uh, now it goes into really low value things like pet food and fish meal and things like that. So that really doesn't give them much money. So if they go out, you know, with the intention to catch a 100, but only 20 are sold, then they're sort of forced to go back out five more times, which is what is leading to the overfishing. So this made me think that I really needed to work uh, less with fishermen and more with the consumers to make them aware about, you know, what's happening out there in the ocean and how by just changing the way that they eat, they could really contribute to this sustainable revolution. Yes,
0: and educating consumers, right? It's It runs <laughs> it runs all industries. It's super important. And that's a really good point that you bring up. And I was on the in-season fish website, and it's really like a little app. And it makes it very simple for consumers to understand what fish are being caught when, right? So you can choose where you are in India and then choose the month. And then it just tells you like what fish to eat and what to avoid. And, you know, if anybody's a chef out there, it's a little bit of a test to see what
1: how to prepare the different fish? Yeah, so the idea there was to tell people not only what to eat in which season, which we've sort of put together based on the breeding seasons of fish, so you avoid the breeding season and eat the fish during other seasons, but also to kind of showcase the diversity of what we have. So we have about over 100 species on the website. And Another important part of this was to also look at supply chains just because they were so opaque and so difficult to understand that it completely made sense that consumers knew nothing about what was happening in the ocean. So we did want to like change this around and have people go directly to the small scale fishermen who were fishing sustainably and buy from them. And so before the pandemic, actually, we used to have a program putting small-scale fishermen directly in touch with either consumers or restaurants so that we could create these, you know, direct transparent supply chains where the fishermen who wanted to fish sustainably could directly benefit.
0: That's awesome. So how has that changed since covid
1: Yeah, so during COVID, of course, we had really extended shutdowns in India. And during this time, of course, everything, like all these things collapsed. And unfortunately, many of our restaurant partners also did not make it through the pandemic. So we've had to sort of, you know, go back to square one in terms of that part of the program. But in terms of individual seafood eaters, that's a part of the program that we're still uh, working with. So, we have these guided tours through fish markets and fishing harbors where we take individual seafood eaters and show them how their fish is caught, sort of reteach them how to buy fish, you know, what to look for, how to identify fish, what questions to ask the sellers so that they cultivate some kind of a relationship. Because one of the things that we found while we were doing all this work pre-pandemic, we were also sort of looking at it as research in terms of trying to understand what impacts we were having uh, in terms of actual consumer awareness. So we were trying to compare the impact of this social media campaign that we had versus real-life encounters through our guided tours. Uh, And we definitely found that the guided tours seemed to create a much more lasting impact. In that, people would get back to us months later to tell us that they were thinking about ordering seafood online. And then they remembered the face of the fisherman that we introduced them to and thought, okay, maybe I shouldn't order this online because it would take away from his income. And let me just call him and ask him directly if he has this fish or whatever. And so those were the kinds of things that were coming out from, you know, our experiences and our tours, but we weren't having the same kind of impact with just the social media. So it was sort of this issue of scale, like with social media, we could sort of show some level of scaling up. But with the guided tours, we were having like a more long-term impact. So it's, yeah, it's sort of difficult to understand what exactly we should do now, but that's where we are.
0: Yeah. And it is that, you know, in-person is always more impactful, right? It's so easy to just kind of flip past on the scroll, but to actually get out and physically see, see where your food is coming from, see who's catching it and what kind of conditions all of these things are in, right? Like what, how is the fish being caught? What's the market look like? who is your fisherman? All that's so much more impactful than, you know, even the most eloquently written social media posts or series of posts, right? Just there's no, there's no replacement for real world, but I understand you want to broaden the reach. So something that really struck me when I was doing research with you is that you touched on the idea of certified seafoods versus the seafood commons. And certified seafoods, there's, I mean, several different organizations that put their stamp of approval on saying that this is a sustainable seafood by whatever rigors or standards that they require. But it's not really available to everyone. And I would love to hear your perspective on shifting that to the seafood commons.
1: So, uh, in terms of certified any food, in India, what we've been seeing increasingly is that it hasn't really had the kinds of economic benefits or impacts, both in terms of actual ecological benefits or economic benefits, as were initially promised. So, I say this with respect to certified coffee, for example where this has been done now for, I think, over a decade in India, where coffee has been certified. But the actual farmers are not seeing the kind of economic benefits that they thought they would. And certainly, they're not having to uh, do as much in terms of being more eco-friendly. So somehow, just by having these kind of globalized Standards, It doesn't seem to actually make for more eco-friendly coffee uh, farming in this local context. So that was one of the reasons why, uh, for instance, people were not interested in continuing to go for certifications uh, in other products after they saw what happened in coffee. The second reason why certification uh, is going to be quite difficult to do in India is because India's fisheries are multi-species. So certifications have worked really well when we're talking about single-species fisheries where you can actually count, you know, how much of what is being caught and monitor everything and it all sort of fits neatly into a box. But India's fisheries are not like that. I mean, we only have multi-species fisheries except for very few Fisheries And so it's pretty difficult to actually certify them just in terms of the methodology. Finally, it's also really expensive to get international certifications. And the international certifications are the ones that everyone's interested in because that's where the promises were made about uh, economic benefits. Because the Indian consumers are certainly not educated enough to really go and pay a premium for certified products yet there is like a small percent of people who are doing this now but it's definitely not enough to make it economically viable so there are like a multiple multitude of reasons why certification uh, won't really work in this context and also because i'm not sure how transparent certification actually makes things I mean, we've seen this in terms of various types of uh, certifications across, you know, from carbon credits to whatever it may be. Uh, It's not very clear, particularly in globalized supply chains, how much transparency there actually is. So instead, what our aim was to sort of make local people feel more responsible for what is happening within their local environment. What I was noticing was that people who I saw as deeply connected to what was happening in the oceans, people like chefs and restaurant owners, did not see themselves as stakeholders at all, which didn't make sense to me at all because they were the ones who were driving all the trends in who's eating what seafood. So I really wanted to, you know, wake them up and make them open their eyes to what they were doing because they really had no idea about the impacts of their actions. And all these people, you know, people who live in cities and a lot of people are now trying seafood for the first time because they've moved from other inland areas or they were sort of restricted by certain societal norms to be vegetarians before and are now trying non-vegetarian or seafood. So all these people are having an impact on what's happening in the oceans and they just don't see it. And so I just wanted to ensure that people on all sides of the supply chain see what is happening on all sides of the supply chain like just to make this all very visible and then if they continue to you know take actions that are unsustainable or whatever then it's on them but right now they just don't know they have no way of knowing what's happening out there in the oceans and so what I realized is that we keep harping on how the fishermen have to you know come together and manage the fishing commons and There's a lot about this in the literature as well. Uh, But we don't see how the fishermen's hands are tied by markets and supply chains and all these other things. So it's really important that it's not just the fishermen, but it's everyone in the seafood supply chain who has to come together to manage the fishing commons. So we can't think about it as fishing commons anymore, given these kind of globalized economic practices that we have. We have to think about it as seafood commons. We have to think about the person eating fish tomorrow in a restaurant as being one of the important decision makers for what is going to happen to that fishing commons. So this is what we're trying to achieve by, you know, getting people to buy from their local fishermen and creating these transparent supply chains, because we want them to see how their actions have an impact. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It brings to mind the saying, think global, act local, and it's one of the best things that you can do is, again, to know source. Where's your food coming from? And how is it impacting the environment that you're in? It's a really good point.
1: Yeah, with seafood being like the last wild food that we're eating, I think it's particularly important to think about it and think about it differently than just farming or other things.
0: We chatted a lot about the fishermen and getting them involved. And your work is being recognized. You won an award for some of the efforts that you're trying to do. And that was the Future for Nature Award. And it really has, I feel like, expanded and really broadened the reach of the work that you're able to do. So would you chat a little bit about the Future for Nature Award and what that means
1: for your work? So the Future for Nature Award was basically to recognize how an initiative like in season fish can go beyond just talking about sustainable seafood but can actually be used for the conservation of any threatened marine species but also i was particularly focused on sharks and rays and those are like some of the most threatened marine species anyway that are globally recognized so this award was to recognize the fact that this is sort of an innovative program that has a wide reach in marine conservation, going beyond sustainable seafood and also looking at wildlife conservation effectively. I was really shocked when I got the news that I won it because I mean I had never won anything like that before and also it's a global award and I mean doing this what I thought was a small thing in like a remote part of India I, I mean I really did not expect that it would get global attention at all. But it's been fantastic because an effort like this really needs the limelight and it really needs the attention because we are trying to create awareness and you know reach out to c- uh, consumers and things like that. And so in that way, I think it's really put both sustainable seafood and sharks on the map in India. And it's really uh, helped kind of spin off a whole bunch of other research and conservation action on these species by so many more people. I have, you know, people writing to me all the time now saying, you know, we heard that you won and we are also doing these things. And either, you know, can we work with you or do you have ideas for us or can we apply to the award? And, you know, so there's like so much conversation now about these things, which just wasn't there before. That's awesome.
0: That's a really good point. The limelight, right? Just being able to shine a spotlight on the work that's being done. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is you act local, but you think global, right? So like your local actions are having global repercussions, and that just really highlights it. So something that I read when I was doing research on you that really struck me was that in the early 1800s sawfish rostrums, which is like the actual saw part, which gives them their name, were like washing up on beaches, like they just used to be very prevalent in India. And then now it's just such a rarity, right to even see that to even see the fish and like you're reporting sightings of the fish where they used to just pieces of them used to be in abundance washing up on the beach. So what was it that motivated you to turn your lens on sharks and rays?
1: So I had worked with threatened species that were protected by Indian law, like sea turtles. I had worked on them before and I could see how both the recognition that they were protected by Indian law and also the general awareness among people that these are protected species, along with a lot of grassroots conservation effort, really made a difference. And I could see how sea turtles were being protected. But sharks and rays occupied this strange place of being uh, somewhere in between commercially acceptable species and being threatened species. Because at the time when I began my work, some of them were considered least concern on IUCN. And so it was perfectly fine to keep trading in them. And yet there were others that were endangered. And out of like 170 or more species that were found in India, only about seven were actually protected. There was a lot of confusion about whether those species even exist in Indian waters. And there are like lots of issues with the ones that were protected. But yeah, so they were sort of in this gray area of being like kind of endangered, but then also commercially viable. And I was really interested in that kind of complexity and the fact that they needed to be protected, but they weren't. And so I felt like doing something on this group I could really make a difference. And by, you know, sort of finding exactly what was driving their fisheries, maybe I could help this group of species in some way. Just like how all the conservation efforts have helped sea turtles and all these other uh, species that are now receiving quite a lot of attention and protection. So what is the
0: culture like surrounding sharks in India? I understand there's a dish that people are eating the sharks as well. In India, um, how do the fishermen feel about, you know, when they catch sharks, what does the culture look like around sharks?
1: So I think maybe about 50 years ago, there was a culture of fishermen going out to catch very large sharks as a sort of rite of passage, especially when young fishermen had to kind of graduate to going out on their own boats. They would be asked to go out, you know, into deep water and catch a shark with a single line and a hook. And so that was like considered like this big cultural event. But now with nets and motorboats and things like that, it's not such a big deal to catch a shark anymore. So that culture has kind of died out and instead sort of been replaced by this entire culinary culture of people, particularly from lower income groups, depending on shark and ray meat as an important source of protein. So because shark and ray meat is kind of strong smelling and strong tasting, it hasn't been a real favorite among people who can afford to eat other things. And so it's typically been lower priced than many other uh, seafood varieties. And so it's been something that lower economic group people depend on, which has sort of worked okay for the trade for some time, because there was no wastage involved, like if sharks were caught for their fins, they were also being used for the meat and so on. But because of shark biology, where they don't produce thousands of eggs at a time, they just have a few young at a time. And so the rate of fishing was something that was way beyond what the populations of sharks could actually sustain. It wasn't very long before all the populations started crashing. So what did it look like as you started to dip your toe into this. You've already been on
0: the ground talking to fishermen with your turtle work, right? So it just kind of was like a continuation of that.
1: Yeah, so I think for one, it's such a diverse group of species. We're talking about sharks and rays and guitar fishes and sawfishes and, you know, such a huge variety. And so it's very difficult to even get fishermen to talk about all of them in the same breath. So they are willing to make concessions for some species in certain locations. For instance, there are parts of the West Coast where guitar fishes are not really very economically valuable. And so there it's possible to suggest alternatives where they could release the guitar fishes they catch or try to avoid catching them in the first place. But then they are not willing to make those same accommodations for other sharks or raise. So it seems to be very context specific. And so talking to different types of fishermen along different parts of the coast is helping my team and I get an idea of what kinds of conservation solutions might work in different places, so that we don't have to have this one size fits all solution, but, you know, kind of tailor made solutions for each location.
0: So what are some of the different solutions? I really like this idea of You have to go to the source and see what it looks like, right? And like figure out what's going on before you're like, and this is how you fix it, right? You learn what the problem is before you come up with the solution. So what are some of the solutions that you are coming up with, you and your team?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we've been talking about, especially with guitar fishes where they don't have an economic value, is to suggest a live release program. So, what we're now trying to do is figure out what kinds of incentives we can give people, whether they have to be monetary or not, and kind of set up these live release programs for these critically endangered guitar fishes. In other locations, for example, for mobular rays, the trade is very oriented just to exports. They're just exporting the gill plates. And although this is supposedly regulated by CITES, it's, I mean, it's still kind of rampant. So I think what has been pretty useful in that case is to actually have lobbied for mobula rays to get onto the Indian Wildlife Protection Act so that they now become protected species. And that has been pretty effective in, I mean, it's not yet protected, but... There's a lot of effort by several NGOs going into making sure that it gets on that list. They've also been doing a lot of awareness on the ground with fishermen. And as a result, the the catches of mobula rays have been dropping in some of these areas where they are selectively targeted for this export of their gill plates.
0: It's a more sustainable solution, right? Talk to the fishermen, explain why it's a problem. And then you work towards the policy, right? But if the policy just came into place, you know, they were just handed, here's a new rule, don't catch these anymore. That'd be a harder pill to swallow.
1: Yeah. And that was tried before and it failed. So I think we've learned. Okay, fair. So you're educating fishermen, you have like shark
0: ambassadors that are going out and talking to these fishermen. Are They're just going in when they're coming in and kind of looking at their nets. What does that look like?
1: What we have is a group of people who are out at fishing harbours and beaches almost on a daily basis across different parts of the country. And they're checking what fishermen are catching and talking to them and, you know, doing either like formal interviews or just informal chats and as a result building a kind of you know rapport with the community and once that happens and especially once the community realizes how much effort you're putting into this I think they kind of really value uh, anything you might have to say after that so just to give you an example someone that I was working with continued to, you know, live and work with these fishing communities through the whole COVID pandemic. And I think the communities really appreciated that because uh, everyone else had pretty much just shut themselves off and the communities felt pretty stranded. So after that, when we came out with a message of, you know, let's conserve these species, let's not try and target them so much, they were pretty open to those ideas because they felt like, You know, this group of people has made an effort and they're sort of invested in the long term. It's not like they're just like here for a short term glory or something. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So it's not just working with the fishermen. I understand that you've also kind of been getting the chefs involved, right? Getting the people that are actually purchasing the meat involved as well.
1: Yeah, With respect to chefs, one major thing that we've been doing both as part of the In Season Fish campaign as well as for this is to educate them uh, not only on what they shouldn't eat, like they shouldn't be eating sharks and rays or shouldn't be serving sharks and rays, but then to kind of suggest alternatives to them. And that's been an interesting process because I've never thought about marine species in terms of their texture and cooking times and all these other things. But that's what's really important for chefs. And so we've had to do a bunch of experimentation with particular dishes that featured sharks before and to see how we can effectively replace that in such a way that people don't really notice the difference.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. So, do you take some of these lessons that you learned about texture and cooking times and bring it home and like improve your own chef
1: skills? Yeah, I think the pandemic has really helped with uh, forcing us to all become better home cooks. I think all this preparatory work with the chefs has really, yes, definitely improved my home cooking. Side benefit, right? Awesome. So would you chat a little bit about Sharkwater? I understand it's a citizen science program, correct? So we haven't yet launched that completely. We're still sort of trying it out with the people who are within our own network. And we haven't yet launched it to the public because we did realize that It was going to be quite difficult for us to figure out exactly what format we needed in terms of pictures. And sharks are some notoriously very difficult to identify. And so we would need certain very specific things to be able to do anything with the data that we got from the public. Uh, And so we're sort of still working on a program that will help the public identify what species they're, they're photographing. And in that way, not just provide data for us, but also educate them in the process. Yeah.
0: So the idea is that they're going to markets and looking at these sharks and identifying them that way, right? It's not like they're going swimming in the water and trying to identify these sharks. Get the people that are already involved, iron out the kinks, and then you open it up to the public. Because yes, shark identification is challenging. can't tell you how many shark pictures I've gotten, and it's like... The head and a sliver of the dorsal, and they're like, "What is this?" I'm like, "I can give you a couple answers. It may or may not be this, but I really like the idea. I love citizen science. Just anything that you can do to kind of get the people involved, get the public involved, and have some investment, which you kind of do anyway with your seafood tours, and like getting to know the fishermen that way. So it's just another thing that gets people involved in you know knowing where everything is coming from and how it, it's all connected." Awesome. So at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions to ask. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. What is your favorite sea creature?
1: And why? Oh, I would have to say an oceanic white tip shark. Yeah, just because it like migrates everywhere. And it's like so fierce. And I just feel like I want to be that.
0: (laughs) Migrating everywhere and fierce.
1: I like it. I like that a lot. What does the ocean mean to you? Oh, I think a sense of peace and calm and also of mystery and excitement. Uh, So it's all these like wonderful sensations all together. Yeah. I'm definitely a beach person and not a mountain person. Yeah, I feel you.
0: (laughs) If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for?
1: I would use the money for... For one, I think to start up some kind of subsistence payments for the fishermen, because this was something that happened during COVID. And I noticed that a lot of fishermen really took advantage of getting these subsistence payments and didn't fish as much. And so the overall goal of reducing fishing effort, that would really help that they had some kind of guaranteed income. And yeah, that would be a great way to, I think, also spend the money. But that would definitely be one. But certainly we'd need to do a lot more work underwater with sharks. I think I'm pretty tired of seeing dead sharks. I would like to see them alive. And so that would definitely be something that's on top of the list of things that I want to do. Okay, Do you have an idea for a
0: specific underwater project or you're just like anything? I want to see live sharks on a regular basis.
1: No, we are thinking about it. Uh, It's just that from mainland India, it's a little bit difficult because there aren't many locations that where visibility is high. But yeah, we are trying to think about what we can do in those few areas where we can see what we're doing.
0: What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day out in the field, kind of interacting with either animals or the fishermen, right? Like you interact with the fishermen a lot. Or it could be a day where things happened and it just
1: makes a really great story now. I think it was this, like we met a fisherman who... Seemed to be this typical like greedy capitalist kind of fisherman. He was doing the fishing business and his brother was into the trade. And it seemed like they were this family of people who were into seafood for whom profits mattered the most. But then I saw him actually looking at each one, each individual crab or lobster that was being caught. And if he ever noticed that they had eggs, he would put them back in the water. And I was just like, wow, how come, you know, I would have thought that this kind of a person wouldn't care about these details because it's all about the profits for him. And it's all about the volumes and all these things. But he was really, you know, taking care of that and making sure that he wasn't killing any of the breeding females. And then I asked him why he was doing that. And he said, he attended some seminar somewhere and came across a pamphlet. And in that little pamphlet, there was some information about how if they just released all the breeding females, then they would have, like, they would be able to continue to sustain populations for the future. And like, it never occurred to me that a pamphlet could have this impact on someone who was so crucial to the fisheries, and that he would continue to you know, actually put into practice something that a little pamphlet told him, like many years later, he was still doing this. And he was still making sure that everyone in his whole operation was doing this. And so I was just like, wow, like conservation awareness, or like these small messages that you don't even think about how they are going to have an impact, and they have like this huge impact. And so that just seemed like a wonderful, wonderful outcome from such a small effort. Yeah.
0: Oh, what a great story. It's so true, though. Like, you never know, you never know what's going to resonate, what's going to strike a chord, like, to you and I, we have this, like, conservation life cycle biology lens. So we're, it's like, of course, why would you take the gravid females? Those are eggs for your livelihood, like put them back. But for somebody who's only had the lens of pull, 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 take, 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 fill it all up so that we can make money so we can feed our families, right? It's a totally different perspective. And so for him to to just be exposed to that, right? Like this is the basic biology life cycle. If he had never thought about that before, his mind was probably blown. (laughs) It was clearly because years later, he's still doing it. So yes, education, it's so important. I love it. It's a great story. Okay, at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you
1: like my audience to take from your episode today? Okay, so I'm particularly talking to the seafood eaters out there and saying that you need to be very conscious about what you're eating. So make sure that you eat diverse, that you don't restrict yourself to just the same old species all the time. I'm sure that there are many seafood advisories out there all across the world, and it would be great if you followed one of them. So make sure that you eat diverse and eat seasonally and eat whatever is safe to eat in terms of not being threatened species and things like that. But more importantly, I think uh, just engaging with you know the wider ecosystem and realizing what an important role you play, whether you are a marine biologist or whether you're just someone who lives in a city and eats seafood. You're still playing a really important role in what's happening out there in the ocean. And I think finding a way to connect with the fishing communities and the coast and realizing the impact that you're having would be something fantastic that you could do. Yeah. That's a really good point. I like that. So
0: we just had our primary elections here in the United States and it's so voting's on the forefront of my mind. But It only happens, you know, once every so often, and I think one of the most powerful things that people can do as consumers is to recognize that they actually vote every single day with the money that they spend, right? Every dollar, in your case, every rupee that you spend is a vote towards what you want.
1: That's an amazing point. So. Yeah, that makes me think so hard now. (laughs)
0: It kind of, this is why I don't like shopping. I get into analysis paralysis and I put everything back. But anyway, voting with your dollars every day because it's something that you can do. You know, knowing where your seafood's coming from and and buying seafood from a person that you know or you know that that company practices sustainable practices, right? These are things that we can do. Absolutely.
1: But also, I think to recognize that this idea of shopping paralysis made me remember that We don't have to think about it as if we are alone and we have to make these decisions every day for ourselves. I think the larger, you know, adding our voices to forcing governments and companies to be more sustainable and sort of pre-make these decisions for us where it doesn't have to be our decision all the time. I think that's something that we really need to put our voices and energies into. Yeah, absolutely a
0: great point. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best
1: place to do so? So you can find my work by looking on Instagram or Twitter. Our handle is at InSeasonFish. And you can also email me at my email address at Ashoka University. So that's divya.karnad at In. Yeah, I'd be happy to hear from anyone who has comments or questions or anything else. Perfect.
0: And I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes today for listeners. Divya, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.